So given this week's content, we're potentially going to need to change the name of the podcast. So, new name, go. The Podcaster's Guide to Secret Plots. Aren't plots by definition secret? Okay. The Podcaster's Guide to The Secret. Ooh, new AG. Ten tips the wellness industry doesn't want you to know about? The Podcaster's Guide to the Complot. <laughs> Complot. Complot. Oh. No, it's just a synonym for conspiracy. The Podcaster's Guide to Things Formerly Known as Conspiracies and Conspiracy Theories. Eh, I think the Prince Estate might sue us. The Podcaster's Guide to the Bad Stuff They Do. Eh, it's getting there. The Podcaster's Guide to the Lying Liars and Their Lying Lies. Uh-huh. Sorry, just trying to work out the potential paradoxes with that one. The Podcaster's Guide to Excuses About Talking About Popular Culture. Eh, it's accurate. The Podcaster's Guide to Your Mum. <laughs> we have a winner. Your mum's a winner. Yeah, don't I know it. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. And welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand, and in Zhuhai, China, we have Associate Professor of Philosophy, proficient in over 12 martial arts styles, oh, sorry, over 12 hairstyles. It's Dr. M. Rx Dentith. Hello there. Mm. Uh, Actually, no, no, I've, just, I've just gone hello there because, oh, that's the, that's the Obi-Wan thing. And I've been watching that new Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. And I have to say, I'm just not impressed at all. Not impressed at yeah. all. I watched the first two. They seem fine. I don't know. I but the thing them. is, being fine isn't really good enough when you're spending that amount of money on those actors. And they're going, uh, well, you know, I guess I could appear in a scene. You know, maybe. Also, apparently Darth Vader, Darth Vader is afraid of fire. Or at least well, not afraid of fire. He just can't do anything if there's a fire around. Well, can you? Yes. No. Yes. Yes, I can. Right. Now, we're not actually here to talk about uh, Star Wars-related TV shows, although we could, obviously. That being um, said, well, I mean, one, one of the characters that we're going to be talking about when I think about it has a kind of Star Wars-esque name. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, yes. But anyway, we're, we're, let, let's not spoil things immediately. Um <clears throat> Let's spoil them in approximately 30 seconds after I've said it's an episode of uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre, where we're going to be looking at a paper by David Cody uh, on those wacky miscreants, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule, again. Again. Yeah, and this, is, and this is not the last time we'll be talking about them either, because it turns out people do like dunking on that particular paper by Sunstein and Vermeule. Although what's interesting about David's piece here is whilst it's technically called Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule on conspiracy theories, quite a bit of the argument is about Cass Sunstein's chapter in his book, Going to Extremes, which is interesting and notable by the absence of Adrian Vermeule as a co-author. Yes, well, I don't think there's anything else to say. So why don't you play a chime? Actually, why don't I play a chime? Because um, if this episode sounds different, and I have no way of knowing if it does at the time we record, it's because I'm doing the audio mixing this time to take a little bit off of the good doctor's plate. 
So I, I like you've you've given me the templates and all the stuff I need. I, I still though haven't seen the instructions on exactly where I put in all the fart sound effects and the sort of the, the Alvin and the Chipmunks filter and all of that stuff. Uh, there, is there a particular protocol about when you add a boing and when you add a wah, wah, wah? Now, the thing is, sound editing is both a science and an art. And I can, I can teach you the science part, where to cut, how to cut, how to adjust levels. But when it comes to putting in the fart noises, Josh, that's the artistic side. And I can't tell you where those noises go. I also can't tell you where to put the fnords in. Now, people, long-time listeners to this podcast will be very aware of the very artful fnord placement in every episode. And Josh, you're just going to have to work that out yourself. There are some things you can only learn through experience, just like your mum. I'll just muddle through then, but um, I'm pretty sure at this point I can manage putting in a sting. Welcome. To Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So, yes, today we are looking at the paper Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule on Conspiracy Theories, which is written by David Cody, published in Argumenta, in 2018. A special issue of Argumenta on Conspiracy Theories. Uh-huh. I also appear in that, but of course we don't discuss my papers in no. this Masterpiece Theatre series because that would be weird. would be a bit strange, you know. We never never really worked out a, a good solution for that. So, like, my, my reaction as a non-academic not working in the field was, to begin with, was like, oh, for goodness sake, like, the paper, there was 2009, this is 2018, and people are still going on about them? But... um did they really stir up that much of a hornet's nest? Is it, is it just a case of everybody felt the need to give their particular take? So I'm in two minds about this, because on one level, I kind of agree we do go on, and I said we as in the academic community of philosophers working on conspiracy theory, we do go on about that paper probably more than it deserves. It is a very bad argument. And it uses specious reasoning to get to its conclusion. Its evidential base is pretty poor. The problem is, A, Cass Sunstein's relative position in the Obama administration at the time made it quite notable. And B, it does get cited quite a bit. And therein lies the issue. So it does look as if we're going on and on and on about it. But because it is being cited by scholars outside of philosophy, it's kind of, well, do we have to remind you again this is not a good argument? Because it's quite obviously a bad argument. And yet people are reading and citing it outside of philosophy as if it's actually a good one. So I'm in two minds. Yes, we do go on about it a lot. B, it does get cited a lot, which is why we then have to go back and go, you do realize this is bad, right? Right? Mm. Right? Right? That's it. Right? Right. That said, it, it does go in some interesting new directions, uh, this paper, uh, which we will see when I get into it, which I'm going to do right now. I think it's my turn on the abstract, so I'm going to do uh, it. Josh, it has been your turn on the abstract now for several abstracts in a row. I think you just assume it's always your, your time on the abstract. Okay. So I think it's my time. To do it. So, so we'll, we'll, let me read the abstract. Far be it from me. 
I criticise Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule's influential critique of conspiracy theories in Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures. I argue that their position depends on an equivocation over the meaning of the term conspiracy theory. This equivocation reflects a widespread assumption that conspiracy theories tend to be false, unjustified and harmful, and that as a result, we can speak as if all conspiracy theories are objectionable in each of these three ways. I argue that this assumption is itself false, unjustified and harmful. There are many true, justified, and or beneficial conspiracy theories. This is because people often conspire, we often have good reason to believe that people are conspiring, and there is often a significant public benefit in exposing their conspiracies. I compare conspiracy theories to scientific theories, arguing that just as most of us regard bad scientific theories, i.e. false, unjustified, and harmful ones, as an acceptable price to pay for good scientific theories, we should regard bad conspiracy theories as an acceptable price to pay for good conspiracy theories. I go on to argue that Sunstein and Vumil's proposed cure for conspiracy theories is unlikely to work and is inconsistent with the values of liberal democracy. Indeed. Now, at the very end, in the conclusion section of this paper, David Cody does say, starts by saying, I originally intended to write about Sunstein's latest book, Conspiracy Theories and Other Dangerous Ideas, but only one chapter of that book is on conspiracy theories, or rather the things he calls conspiracy theories, and that is virtually identical with the article he co-authored with Vermeule. So he does, he acknowledges the existence of the book. but um, Yeah, so I called it going to extremes. It was another... Sunstein book released around about the same time. As David also points out, I think, when he's talking about the, I was going to talk about the book, not just this particular article, he points out there's actually something very weird about the chapter in Conspiracy Theories and Other Dangerous Ideas, in that Vermeule doesn't get credited as a co-author on that chapter, despite the fact that the chapter is virtually identical apart from a few lines. And so it just seems kind of strange that a co-authored piece suddenly can become a single-authored piece in a chapter by changing just a few words. It's almost as if someone's authorship attribution in the original wasn't very strong, or someone is trying to avoid association with an author later on in life. And frankly, both hypotheses seem interesting, and I don't know which one's actually plausible. Well, that aside, um, what we do know is that I didn't put my phone on mute, and that it's time to move into the introduction. So the introduction is familiar territory, I think, for, for us at least, for me, having um, looked over a lot of this stuff before. It's basically just it introduces Sunstein and Vermeule's arguments as they put forward in their paper, um, argues why the, the things you just said basically before, why, why it's significant, why Sunstein in particular is significant due to his role in the American administration and, and, and the, you know, which leads to the possibility that some of these ideas might actually be put in practice, ideas which, as we've seen and as we will see again in this paper, are questionable. Um, now, David Cody says, this will not be the first work of philosophy to critique Sunstein and Vermeule on this subject, but it will be the first to do so in the kind of depth which, given the above points, it seems to merit. Um, which so seems he's... like a bit of a backhanded 
complement to previous authors, say like Curtis Hagen on the same issues? I don't know whether it's a case of David having not read those papers beforehand, or whether he's simply referring to the people who have, like me, given the kind of surface, this is a bad argument, here's why, and moved on. But it does seem, because I don't think this is actually the first work to do it in depth, truth be told, at least not by this particular point in time. Mm. But um, at any rate, he turns uh, to, the de- to the definition of conspiracy theory, and I think that this is sort of going to be one of the central things about this paper, the way Sunstein and Vermeule define conspiracy theory, um, or not, as the case may be. Uh, so he says, I will not be presenting my own definition of conspiracy theory or any related terms. I will consider only Sunstein and Vermeule's definitions. The reason for this is simply that I do not believe there is such a thing as the right definition of conspiracy theory or even that there are any good definitions. I'm committed to the normative, indeed the ethical thesis, that we should refrain from using the term conspiracy theory or any of the terms associated with it, such as conspiracy theorist, conspiracist, conspiracism, and so on, and that we should discourage others from doing so as well. Uh, And then on a footnote, for this reason, this article can be understood as a contribution to the growing field of applied philosophy of language. And it was this point that was like, oh, okay, now I'm paying attention. Philosophy of language, eh? But um, this is is the move that you've alluded to several times in the past, where David Cody basically says we shouldn't be using the term conspiracy theory. Yes, and it's a move he's also making with respect to fake news as well. And I think there's more merit to the fake news nomenclature than there is with respect to the conspiracy theory stuff. Because you can quite plausibly argue, even if the phenomena of fake news is old, the term fake news is relatively modern. It was invented in our lifetimes. It is a term which was used initially satirically and has now taken on a very different epistemic stance. So maybe there's a project to go, look, it might not be too late to eliminate the term fake news from our lexicons and simply refer to the pathology of news it represents. But when it comes to the conspiracy theory stuff, my basic argument is good luck trying to stop people Mm. from using this term, especially good luck trying to stop politicians from using this term to smear things they don't want said about them. Because the worry I have with the elimination strategy around terms like conspiracy theory is even if you persuade academics to stop talking about conspiracy theories, politicians are going to label things they don't like as conspiracy theories very successfully as a rhetorical move. And if there is an academic pushback saying, actually, by this we mean, this will actually make the situation worse, not better. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always been those terms that, when you look at it, don't actually have any meaning other than thing I don't like. Uh, woke seems to be the latest one, which is just uh, political correctness in a new disguise. There's a bunch of them around that, you know, if, if you're wanting to give any sort of a structured logical analysis of them, you find out, well, they're basically worthless as a term because they have no real meaning. It's just whatever the speaker wants them to mean at the time. And yet people keep using them. And, and have been one way or another for a long time. So, yeah, maybe that's not going to change. But anyway, getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So having said, he says we should refrain from use, using these terms. He says, why? The fact that these terms are multiply ambiguous has been well documented. And, of course, that's true. We've talked plenty of time. Lots of people use the word conspiracy theory to mean different things and attach lots of different baggage to it. Now, he says, he says of course, ambiguity 
isn't isn't much on itself. There's lots and lots of amb- ambiguous words out there. Uh, but he says, talking about ambiguous words, in most contexts it is clear, or at any rate clear enough, what they mean. By contrast, the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist are routinely used equivocally, and arguments that these theories and or theorists are a problem that need addressing are routinely guilty of the fallacy of equivocation. It seemed to me like th- there's a big, big emphasis on equivocation at the start of the paper, and then that kind of goes away later on, although maybe it's just having been established, we should we were just supposed to be, uh, that, that's, that's just what we should be keeping in mind as we go through. Um, equivocation, of course, being u- using the same term in two different ways and possibly not realising about it, which has always been... Aristotle, Aristotle was dead against equivocations. He always cautioned you to watch out for them when you don't know that you're doing it. See, I, I think Aristotle was dead, dead against equivocation because he was very aware that a lot of Socrates' arguments relied on equivocating at key points. Because, ah, Joshua, you've just said X, but actually what I meant was Y. So you look foolish now because you weren't aware that when you said X, I was actually talking about Y, you poor, dreadful idiot. I think Aristotle went, yeah, that's the bit I didn't actually like about Socrates. So I'm going to be very much against that kind of move. Yes, and he was. Uh, so that's that's the introductory section out of the way. So the main body of the paper is just uh, titled Sunstein and Vermeule's Argument, uh, and he goes through and, and critically analyzes their argument. Um, he starts by saying that he's going to be using, as, as he said in the introduction, he's going to be using Sunstein and Vermeule's definition of a conspiracy all the way through. He says, in their original paper, Sunstein and Vermeule rather tentatively define a conspiracy theory as an effort to explain some event or practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who attempt to conceal their role, at least until their aims are accomplished. And so he then says, when I, uh, when I use the term conspiracy theory, I simply mean the things which fit Sunstein and Vermeule's definition of a conspiracy theory. And that um, is, is how he uh, sets out and basically how he continues. So as it all goes through, uh, as you'll see, I think there was that comment earlier on in the, in the introduction when he talks about, has the little, little barb about conspiracy theories, or at least the sort of thing they call conspiracy theories. I think that carries all the way through here. Um, so he goes over the way that Sunstein Vermeule, um, in his words, brush aside the fact that many conspiracy theories, even conspiracy theories that meet their definition, are rational or harmless or have been proven true, and indeed, and, and then only focus on the conspiracy theories that are, again, in their words, false, harmful, and unjustified. Which is a problem that Kurt has also identified with Sunstein and Vermeule's account, which is the idea that, well, you know, they seem to have a kind of intuitive understanding of when a theory is false, harmful, and unjustified, without ever arguing why some theories are false, harmful, and unjustified. Mm. Um, and th- this, this, I think, is this is where the equivocation comes in. They first use the term conspiracy theory specifically to mean false, harmful, and unjustified conspiracy theory, but then later on when they're using the term, it certainly sounds like they're using it to mean all conspiracy theories overall, which, which did cause some problems with uh, the, the various earliest of Brian's papers, where, it, as we saw in the reaction to some of them, a lot of it seemed to be down to people getting confused over whether we were talking about conspiracy theories in general or those specific unwarranted mature conspiracy theories. But um, that got sorted out. But since Stephen Vermeule, I think, seemed to 
seem to be a, a bit more guilty of it all the way through. Now, as he said in the introduction, he goes on to compare conspiracy theories to scientific theories, and and basically, when you if if you were to talk about scientific theories the way we talk about conspiracy theories, it would be obvious nonsense if we if we said you know there, there are some scientific theories are bad, some scientific theories have 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 been quite you know harmful historically, especially things you know involving race and stuff like that have, have, have been used to justify very bad things. If if we were to take that and then talk about scientific theories in general as though they were all these ridiculous, disproven and potentially harmful things, I think fairly quickly you would see that's a fairly rubbish way to be talking about science and scientific theories. But um when it comes to conspiracy theories, David Cody is, is claiming uh, that's kind of what people do. So he then tries to he sort of um, does does the thought experiment where he's like, okay, how this this seems a bad move, but how could Sunstein and Vermeule justify their focus, the decision to focus only on these bad conspiracy theories? And he comes up with a few reasons why a person might. Uh, try to defend only focusing on the, this particular subset, but but uh, unsurprisingly rejects a lot of them. So he's sort of uh, continuing with the science uh, scientific theory analogy. He says, "Well, okay, may, maybe maybe you'd say it, it's it's worth focusing only on these bad scientific theories because scientific theories are well well respected, and so because people respect theories in general, that makes it dangerous that you have these bad ones." That people may attach the, the same level of respect to. Of course, conspiracy theories are not normally well respected, certainly in in colloquial and in, in everyday usage. So that particular that particular justification falls over. Another justification you could think of would be that maybe you'd want to say, well, okay, yeah, there, there's good ones and there's bad ones, but the the good ones, or at least the not bad ones, they're very rare. So we can just we we could we could ignore we could not bother talking about those ones because the bad ones are also common. Indeed, he says Sunstein and Vermeule do not explicitly say it, but they strongly imply that conspiracies by powerful people and hence true conspiracy theories on their definition are rare and unimportant. Insofar as they present an argument for this view, however, it applies not to conspiracy theories in general, but to a particular subset of conspiracy theories, those which involve governments of so-called open societies. And we get back into who was it who used to talk about open societies? It was Lee arguing with Brian or Charles. I can't even. Well, remember. it was it was Lee objecting to what we might take to be the naive treatment of Brian's work. Right. So yes. the idea that Brian's work implies a kind of public trust skepticism, a view which even I accuse Brian of having, even though now in retrospect I think. I think both Lee and myself were wrong to think this is a consequence of Brian's argument. But Lee's argument is, well, look, we don't live in a sufficiently open society to be able to say that there isn't one large-scale conspiracy going on in the background. We just don't have the justification for the disbelief in the existence of a large-scale conspiracy going on, which is not to say there is a conspiracy going on. We just don't live in the kind of society where we could be guaranteed of the truth of the claim that such a thing isn't happening and mm. this gets us into this open society thing which is societies can look really really open but as long as there's hierarchy 
And as long as there is control of information by people in positions of authority, a society can look a lot more open than it actually is. And so mm. we kind of look at examples like the US, the UK, and France. Yes, so th- those are the, the three examples that are brought up as, as what what um, an open society might be. I think part, part of the problem here is that it isn't clear what even Sunstein and Vermeule mean by an open society, but they certainly seem to think societies like the US and the UK and France are such. Um, and so their, their argument, their, their sort of line of reasoning would be that these not bad conspiracies, the ones that are actually true, the ones that we are justified in believing in, they tend to fail in an open society because in an open society, information flows more freely and the information about these conspiracies will come out, making it so that they can't remain secret for long enough, at least, to succeed. They'll sure they're, sure they're secret to begin with, but they get found out too quickly. One thing which always kind of strikes me about the open society hypothesis is that you can actually imagine a situation where a society is trying really hard to be open, but kind of failing to do so. So you don't need to think it's a closed society just pretending to be open. You might go, look, we're trying to be as open and transparent as humanly possible, but things keep getting in the way. And the US is a great example of that. Nobody knows how many intelligence agencies and groups are operating in the United States at the moment. Due to the compartmentalized way that the intelligence agencies work, there are a lot of small agencies that are not in communication with other agencies, and the American intelligence establishment has kind of lost track of how many of these groups do we have at any given time. So there's no there's no conspiracy to hide the intelligence community. It's more of a case of the people at the top literally don't know who they're funding and who's kind of responsible for that funding. And they would love to find out. And maybe if they mm. found out, they would then create a master list so the public could find out what's going on. But at the moment, nobody knows. Mm. And in that kind of situation, you're going, well... I mean, you're trying to be open, but you're actually not sufficiently open enough if even you don't know how many closed groups might be operating in your society. And yeah, at this point, the paper, having spoken in fairly general terms up until this point, then kind of goes into an examination of whether the US government specifically um, is capable of keeping things secret for any length of time, which if we are to believe the, the this this consequence of Sunstein and Vermeule's views, they should be able, uh, sorry, they shouldn't be able to being sufficiently open. So Sunstein and Vermeule, in, in their paper, they, they um, did give examples of governmental conspiracies, which were things that, I, I, I don't have the, the exact um, excerpt now, but I believe they were like, you know, here are dodgy things the US got up to, and we found out about them, right, because of the openness. But um, a lot of these things, the, the the spying, the sort of the, the NSA stuff that um, Edward Snowden eventually blew the whistle on, the the whole extraordinary rendition. What was their um, euphemism for torture? Enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation. Enhanced interrogation. Yes. So yes. these things 
went on for years, for starters, before we found out about them. And after we found out about them, wasn't really much in the way of consequence. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of sort of punishment or anything handed out for it. And not just that, but A, a huge amount of resistance to admitting to those things in the first place. And B, punishing or at least attempting to punish the people who revealed those things afterwards. So it's one thing to say that, oh, you know, we now admit that the NSA was surveilling American citizens, but you can't say, oh, and we don't need to worry about this as a as a, a contributory cause to belief in conspiracy theories without going, and yeah, the person who revealed that had to flee the country and can't ever really go back to the United States because he'll be prosecuted. Yeah, so that's, that's not going, oh, we, we can just ignore that. Okay, so look, if you're still thinking about suing or imprisoning the person who revealed the bad things you did, then, yeah, sure, we know about it, but you obviously don't want us to know about it, and you'll do whatever you can to try and ensure that we don't find out about it in future. Mm. So he looks at uh, Sunstein and Vermeule's examples of conspiracies on the part of the US government, which were Watergate, MKUltra, and Operation Northwards, uh, and, and I think but basically kind of accuses Sunstein and Vermeule of un- underselling them, saying that they were actually worse and ran for a lot longer, and in the case of Operation Northwards, were more seriously considered than Sunstein and Vermeule made it sound. Uh, at this point, David himself brings up COINTELPRO, uh, the program that we have devoted an episode to, although he specifically mentions the suicide of Gene Seberg, who I don't think we talked about in the COINTEL No, I don't episode. think we did. I, no. Either. Also, every time I see Co- Co- COINTELPRO, I always read it mentally as COINTELPRO. COINTELPRO, yeah. Or as we said at the beginning, because the CO stands for counter, surely it should be COINTELPRO anyway. But anyway. Um, yes, no, Jean, Jean Seberg was an actress in the 50s, 50s, I think, who committed suicide after being the subject of a, a COINTELPRO uh, smear campaign, basically, run at the, at the behest of J. Edgar Hoover himself, as I recall. So there was a, the, an actual body count associated with COINTELPRO, and it ran for a long time. It went from... It went as far as Nixon's presidency. I can't remember where it started. Truman, something like that. It was. It, it lasted multiple, multiple presidencies, uh, in complete secret, which which uh, kind of calls into question, I suppose, the whole open society thing that they that Sunstein and Vermeule are trying to put forward. So after this, he says. We've seen that Sunstein and Vermeule's implicit assumption that conspiracy theories are false and unjustified is itself false and unjustified. We've also seen that their argument that conspiracy theories are unlikely to be justified when they posit conspiracies on the part of governments of so-called open societies is unsound. What about the alleged harmfulness of conspiracy theories, the third of the trifecta of objectionable qualities of conspiracy theories? So having having looked at the idea of, of the false and unjustifiable, we, we haven't yet addressed whether or not conspiracy theories do harm. So now he turns to that aspect of it. He says, um, Sunset and will go further, portraying both the people and the theories as positively harmful, so harmful that they require a public policy response. Sunset and Vermeule cite some examples of false conspiracy theories that have, have done harm, but anyone can play this game with any category of theory. 
And so returning again to the analogy with scientific theories, you can point to scientific theories that have done actual harm. He brings up phrenology, um, scientific race theory, and uh, Lysenkoism, another thing that we've done in the episode on in the past, which was the, how would you describe it, a socialist agriculture? Well, actually, I, th- I think it would be unfair to call it socialist agriculture because well, that, that besmirches socialism. I mean, it's, it's pseudo-biology with the weird kind of caveat that for some reason evolution by natural selection was some kind of capitalist plot. It was mm. very weird. But yeah, Lysenkoism is... is yeah, it's a very interesting thesis. I always find this particular move interesting because I've also made this move that, look, if we start doing comparisons of warranted versus unwarranted theories, scientific theories often actually look pretty bad because there are more bad scientific theories than there are scientific theories which have been investigated and found good. I think one of the reasons why people object to the term conspiracy theory is that when we talk about things such as phrenology, scientific race theory, and Lysenkoism, we go, oh, but that's not real science. It's not real science because the theories aren't true. So they kind of discard all the bad scientific theories. We go, oh, it's a definitional fact. The scientific theory appeals to, say, a natural law or some kind of scientific truth about the world. So they separate out the practice of scientific theorizing from the product, scientific theories, whilst they don't do the same thing with the practice of conspiracy theorizing, which can go wrong, versus conspiracy theories themselves, which are propositions which are going to either be true or false. So, So yeah, there's a really interesting move that people make when they kind of dismiss the number of scientific theories which have turned out to, on the basis of the evidence, not be very good. However... Uh, The paper continues, Sunstein and Vermeule, however, claim that conspiracy theories are special because there are certain features of false and harmful conspiracy theories that make them distinct from and sometimes more damaging than other false and harmful beliefs, quoting the uh, Sunstein and Vermeule paper there. What are these features? Sunstein and Vermeule's answer seems to be that conspiracy theories, again, they do not specify just the false and or unjustified ones, can have, quote, pernicious effects from the government's point of view, either by inducing unjustifiably widespread public scepticism about the government's assertions, or by dampening public mobilization and participation in government-led efforts. And then further on, it is striking, however, that Sunstein and Vermeule appear to be exclusively concerned with things that may be harmful from the government's point of view, rather than with things that may be harmful from the citizen's point of view, which um, is possibly playing back to the old, to, to, to the fact that Sunstein was essentially part of the government for a while there. So it, it does call into question when you see him saying, or seeming to say, I suppose, that uh, what we need to be worried about is how conspiracy theories might harm the government rather than harm people. And then finally we get into, of course, you, you can't, can't discuss the Sunstein and Vermeule paper without discussing their actual conclusion, their proposed solutions to what we should do about conspiracy theories, which was their good old con- cognitive infiltration. And you'll be surprised to learn that David Cody does not approve of cognitive infiltration. I am surprised to learn that. Mm. I'm very surprised indeed. Um, but interestingly, he does like thinking. Thinking back, most of the most of the um, commentary around this was was 
like to begin with, obviously this is just bad on uh, ethical grounds. Essentially, to, to have have a government conspiring against its own people is just plain morally bad. And then there's also the slight sort of contradiction of your you, you say conspiracy theories are bad, and yet here you are conspiring against the people who are spreading these conspiracy theories. But David Cody said it does take this sort of a step further and actually refers back to the earlier parts of the argument to to show the contradictions in perhaps uh, more obvious relief. I mean, the the, the first thing is you say, okay, so the government needs to essentially conspire against these groups that are spreading conspiracy theories. But hang on a second. Just before, we were talking about how the US was an open society, a society in which conspiracies don't stay secret for long enough uh, for them to actually come to fruition. So on one hand, supposedly the government should be conspiring, and yet you've just said it should not be possible uh, for the government to conspire in the sort of society that Sunset and Vermeule claim we live in. He then moves on to the more sort of uh, ethical dimension of it, saying that it's it's also a worry when someone recommends, uh, sorry, qu- quoting here again, when someone recommends that government officials secretively and deceptively manipulate public opinion. We should be especially worried when someone like Sunstein, who was until recently himself a powerful government official, recommends that government officials behave in that way. To summarise, on the one hand, Sunstein and Vermeule reassure us that we do not have to worry about government conspiracy because we live in an open society. On the other hand, they recommend policies which could never be successful in a truly open society and which, to the extent that they are successful, would make our society less open. At the start, we did cast a small amount of shade on um, David's claim that he's uh, going into it in more detail than perhaps others have, but I think that is that is the most detailed case against the cognitive infiltration um, suggestion that I've seen in a paper so far. So I think part of what's interesting about what's going on with Sunstein and Vermeule here is that, yes, it seems that they're saying our society can't conspire. Let's conspire against the people who say that we can. But I think it's also because of, to use a fancy psychological term, the cognitive dissonance they have about the intelligence apparatus in places like the United States. They don't think of intelligence, intelligence gathering and surveillance as being prima facie a form of conspiracy. Oh, that's just a natural thing that everybody knows goes on in the background. So given everybody knows this is going on, it's a kind of open secret and thus really isn't particularly conspiratorial. So we can just add on to what those agencies do the additional task of infiltrating conspiracy fora to dissuade people from believing in conspiracy theories. So I don't think they consider their policy proposal as being even conspiratorial, even though by definition it is conspiratorial. And also, according to their definition of a conspiracy theory, it would generate conspiracy theories which are pernicious and harmful. Because if people found out the government was conspiring against conspiracy theorists, that would lead to a loss of trust in the government. But because they don't see the proposal as being conspiratorial in the sense it actually is. They're going, well, you know, 
This is perfectly normal activity. Spying on other people, perfectly normal activity in an open society. Surveilling people is a perfectly normal thing for an open society to do. Yes, I mean, under their definition, what do they call a conspiracy theory? Effort to explain some eventual practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who attempt to conceal their role at least until their aims are accomplished. Well, I mean, the US government are powerful people and they're attempting to keep things secret. So yeah, it does certainly seem to fit their definition. Unless, unless they think the intelligence agencies are incompetent. Because, oh no, they're actually not that, you know, they're, they're powerful people, but they're not very good at achieving their ends, or they just pretend to be powerful, but they don't actually get anything done. Which, arguably, I can see someone who's been involved in the intelligence community going, yeah, you might think the people behind the scenes are incredibly clever, but let me introduce you to Stan. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It seems from their point of view, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're doing the thing of they, they've decided conspiracy theories are bad, but what they're proposing is good, so therefore what they're proposing isn't a conspiracy theory, which obviously is a, a deeply dodgy logical move. And it almost sort of comes to what we were talking about right at the beginning, the idea that conspiracy theory becomes a, a slightly meaningless term that just means the, the ones I don't like um, and is no more strictly defined than that, uh, which is possibly what leads David Cody to his conclusion. Um, the conclusion has a few parts to it. To begin with, he talks about, as we said up the top, how he was going to react to Cass Sunstein's more recent book rather than the paper from at this time eight or nine years ago but that the book is essentially identical to the paper. Uh, but so then he talks about using the term conspiracy theory. He says, I said at the beginning that we should not use the terms conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorist, or any of the language associated with these terms. Each time we do so, we are implying, even if we do not mean to, that there is something wrong with believing, wanting to investigate, or giving any credence at all to the possibility that powerful people, and especially governments or government agencies of Western countries, are engaged in secretive or deceptive behaviour. And I mean, as I recall from David's earlier papers, he, he was a real stickler for the including the colloquial definition and definitions of conspiracy theory, wasn't he? He was he was Yeah, he really does want people to make sure that when we talk about conspiracy theories, they're in conflict with some kind of official story. As you say, it doesn't sound like a particularly a particularly plausible thing, like, yeah, you, you get philosophers to stop using it, maybe, but you're not going to stop other people from using it, certainly not politicians for whom it is, can be a useful rhetorical tool. Um, and overall, it, it, yeah, it just seems a bit, a bit defeatist, essentially, to point out that there are problems with this pejorative generalist definition of conspiracy theory, and rather than saying we should work against them to maybe redefine, to, to change the definition, to just conclude that we should ditch the term altogether, it doesn't, doesn't sound like a winning strategy. No, and it's one which I've, I've argued against. I, I mean, there's, a, there's an entire literature as to whether philosophers or just academics in general can change common usage. And I can get going look for academic discussions maybe we should avoid particular terms. But I also think the way that particularists have defined what counts as a conspiracy theory is a very useful way of analysing a particular phenomena in the world. And I don't think we'd be doing the service of analysing 
claims of conspiracy theories, given the pejorative labeling practices that go on, by simply saying we're just not going to use the term. I don't. I really don't think that's a very useful move to make. Mm. And then finally, he turns to the the cognitive infiltration um, aspect of things and the reaction it's got. And the whole paper concludes as follows. He says that Sunstein and Vermeule have clearly, quite rightly, received some negative feedback for that proposal, and Sunstein has now demoted it to one possible policy response, among others, along with banning conspiracy theories and imposing a tax on them. And he's anxious to assure the reader that he is not advocating, quote, 1960s-style infiltration with a view to surveillance and collecting information, possibly for use in future prosecutions, quote, and further that the cognitive infiltration he favours must be consistent with domestic law, but he gives us no reason for believing that things would be different from the 1960s in those ways, and no reason for believing that his recommendations would be legal either. Once again, Sunstein's message is that you can trust the government because it means well. In this respect, he's like other government propagandists. He's distinctive in that he has a further, rather more sinister message. If you do not think the government means well, you're a problem, and we're going to have to do something about it. Love to see how you'd impose a tax on conspiracy Theories. Yes. Yep. Mm. You, you look, Josh. We've uh, detected in the last twelve months of the financial year, so the entire financial year, you've engaged in exactly six and a half conspiracy theories, which means we do have to put you into the top tax bracket for the the duration there. So you know, you you owe the crown a lot of money because of your conspiracy theorizing. So you know, keep. Keep it up and pay that higher tax or stop the conspiracy theorizing and get some kind of tax credit. I mean, I would love to know how that would work. Yeah, I mean, that would have to have, that would require a legal definition of conspiracy theory, wouldn't it? If, you, if and it also, to be subject I mean, to tax it, bill, you'd have to be It's able not to say, like home where it's pay as you earn. In America, you have to fill out tax forms. So there'd be section 3.2, conspiracy theories. In the last 12 months, have you engaged in a conspiracy or spread a conspiracy theory, yes or no? Have you filled in your WBEN 54 conspiracy theory tax adjacent form? You know, has it been franked by the Franklin Mint? You know, the, the paperwork around taxing people on conspiracy theories. I would love to see it. I would absolutely love to see it. Mm. So anyway, that is the very end of the paper. And being being a written medium, it wasn't possible to stick a dun 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 sound effect on it. But that did seem to be the tone. And I guess that's all there is. So I mean, I. Yeah, I went into it thinking uh, this again, another another bloody someone sticking their boot into Sunstein and Vermeule, but I did think this one was different enough um, and, and brought up enough new stuff to be justified. I, I, yeah, I'm not on board with the ditching the term conspiracy theorist thing, but um, I thought it was, a, it, it was probably the most, um, uh, just in, in terms of how it... it um, uh, dismantles Sunstein and Vermeule's theories in a quite sort of logical manner as on top of the, and also this is obviously a bloody foolish, morally wrong thing to do, I guess. Well, we'll be seeing more critiques of Sunstein and Vermeule going forward, so look forward to seeing them demolished again. I will. And again. I will. And again. I will. And again. No, not that time. That's too much. 
Gone too far. And, and believe me, by the end, you'll be going, oh, haven't they suffered enough? And suddenly you'll go, yep, I'm going to support them now. I'm going to support the cognitive infiltration of conspiracy fora because just they're just peaked. People are so against them, I've got to be for them. Which, for Mm. some reason, is a political move some people make. If you're against it, I must be for it. Yeah, yeah, it's a slight worry. And I believe that is all we have to talk about this week, then. We do indeed. Mm. But of course we do have more to talk about, but only to our beloved patrons. What do we have in the patron bonus episode this week? We are going to talk about flickering lights in the skies in the 1950s, a bomb threat at Otago, and some identity theft back home. Mm. Most conspiratorial, I'm sure you'll agree. Indeed. So if you'd like to hear about that, um, go sign yourself up as a patron. You can do that at patreon.com just by looking for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And if you're already a patron, well, then you're, you're sorted. You're sweet. Everything everything is as it should be. All is right on earth and in the heaven. So if you're a patron, buckle up for that bonus content. If you're not a patron, well, thanks for listening all the way to the end of this episode as usual. See, I, I, I was sure you can just say, if you're a patron, buckle up. If you're not a pa- patron and you're driving down a, a fast road, just undo that seat, seat belt and continue to live life dangerously. No, I would never Buckle down. Buckle down, non-patrons. To our, to our listeners, whether they're patrons or not, uh, but you're welcome to. That's, that's entirely your thing. But no, I have nothing more to say, so before we blather on any further, I'm just going to cut a... Put a put a put a line in the sand. I'm going to put my foot down. I'm going to make a few other cliches and just say goodbye. Flexion Durango. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. M. R. X. Dentist. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, the truth is out there, but not quite where you think you left it. Every time we take a really deep breath, that threatens to uh, trigger a cough. Well, try try not breathing. Hmm. Try not breathing. Have you tried not breathing? <clears throat> uh, only recreationally. Only wow. in sexual context. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. Yes. Uh, that's a clip for the end, for the post-credits, I think. Anyway. <clears throat>